Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Leslie, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and um, I am so honored to be here. Um, wherever there's AA, I'm there, you know, uh, whenever I can be anyway. Um, I've had to use a lot of discernment over the past couple years in not spreading myself too thin and making sure it's not ego involved, because the ego is the thing that I'm fighting besides my thinking. Uh, that I've always fought um, as an alcoholic, you know. Um, so I'd like to thank Most High uh, for allowing me to wake up this morning real simple, have all my stuff functioning, being able to do what I'm supposed to do um, to get out of myself and to get out of my head. Um, and as Frank said, I work with a lot of women um, constantly. Um, and I take calls 24-7. And I tell them if I miss your call, uh, I'll call you back. And I generally try to keep to that. That's my... Uh, amends to being selfish, you know, I, that's my amends to God and the universe, just in general. Um, I'm supposed to share in a general way, um, and thank you all. Thank you, Jerry, for having me here. Um, in a general way, what I used to be like, what had happened, and what I'm like today. And one of the things that's amazing for me is when I hear myself tell my story, I know there's some people that tell their story point on the exact same story every time, but I have so many chapters. I, For me, I'm like, how do you stick to that same story? I mean, yeah, what it was like is going to be what it was like. There's so many chapters in the what it was like, and uh, the what happened is always the same, and then there's what it's like today, and there's so many chapters in that. So I'm not one of those to do that. I just go with the spirit, I go with the flow, and I go with what God gives me. Uh, to share with somebody, hoping that someone hears something they can identify and identify with. Um, I'm the oldest of four children. Um, my mother was from Los Angeles. She went to school, high school, and everything. She was born in San Diego, but she's from Los Angeles. Um, my mother, my mother is a veteran. Um, was a veteran. She died on Mother's Day um, in May this past year, but um, she was a veteran of the U.S. Army. And while she was in the army, she met my father. And my father was in the military as well. Uh, they settled down in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So I was born there. I'm a, a army baby, as they say. Um, and uh, we left there. My mom and my youngest brother, we left there uh, in uh, 1964 when I was four years old. Uh, she left my father because he was very abusive. My mother had gotten out of the army and became one of those, uh, in the sixties, one of those standard housewives. You know what I'm saying? She would stay at home with the children. Now she had four kids, uh, me being the oldest and three other boys, but two of the boys died. Uh, two things, uh, six, um, no, I'm sorry, three months apart from two, two different illnesses. The oldest boy was a junior. He died of, uh, meningitis. And the youngest died. He was six months old. Uh, the oldest was 18 months. And then there's a six month old. And he had died of pneumonia. So it was very devastating for my mother. I'm sure it was. But with my father being such an ass, and he wasn't, um, from what I understand, he wasn't really an alcoholic. He just had that thing. He had that, that dysfunction. Now, he had that, I'm the man, do what I say. And he was a country boy, so he was really, really, you know, uh, egomaniac. And my father was a singer. He was an entertainer. So the way he would get away from get away from jumping out the planes is he was favored on the base because they knew that Joe was, and that's my maiden name, 
was the uh, the singer, and he'd sing at the Captain's Club, and he'd sing and all. So he was always that guy that sang, sounded like James Brown a little bit, had that little flow, had a little process in the head, pretty boy, you know what I'm saying? And my mother was very, very dark-skinned, and, you know, at that time, black was not in. Black was not cool, wasn't nothing fly about being dark. You know, and so he used to beat her up so badly. Uh, I remember she used to tell me that he used to beat her so badly. She was unrecognizable. I mean, that was the thing that they did. He beat her up in his jump boots. He was just like horrible. And I remember being about two years old and remember a couple of the the uh, fights that they had. I remember that. My mother says, how do you remember that? I said, I don't know. I just remember. So one night she got tired. Um, after my two brothers died, her mother died a couple months after that. Uh, in LA. So my mother was tired, obviously, and she was pregnant again with my younger brother, who's not, who's still alive. Uh, he's five years younger than I am. And she took a train and brought me and was pregnant and came back to California. And that's where I was raised. I'm raised in Los Angeles. I'm a Hollywood baby. And I'll tell you more about why I am a real Hollywood kid. Um, never acted or anything. I acted a fool, but never acted or anything like that. But my mother was in that industry later on. She came back and she worked for the County General Hospital. She was uh, uh, not a nurse, but she was like, she took care of, she was in pediatrics, taking care of the kids because she was a medic in the army. And uh, she was a very strong, strong-willed, strong individual. I mean, the typical black woman, strong sister, like that thing, you know, going through the Afros, Afro puffs, you know, power to the people, that whole era, you know what I'm saying? Gil Scott Heron and the last poets and all of that. But then she'd mix it up with some Beatles and some Rolling Stones and stuff. So I have this, this, this large background of everything of everything, old Hollywood movies, old black movies, not the ones that there were, there were no talkies, the ones where they were, all of that. And that's how I was raised. Uh, my mother was very, very um, vigilant about raising us well. So my mother ended up sending us to Catholic school and I'm a recovering Catholic. So that's part of my problem. And uh, I remember her putting my brother and myself in, in Catholic school, had a great education, never knew how smart I was until I got in my 50s. That's how long it took me to realize that I'm kind of smart, you know. Um, but she put us through school. She bought a house on the west side in a heavily Jewish populated area. She married a Jewish guy that was one of her, let's see, that's about her fourth marriage. She, she she got married four or five times, five times total. Um, so obviously her area of relationships wasn't that great, but she still went to work every day. We never saw a whole bunch of men in and out of the house. My mother was never on welfare. Or if it, she was, we never knew about it. Um, we took lessons and we, I took guitar lessons. My brother took drum. I mean, just the typical childhood. And we had really good stuff. My mother was just kind of mean. You know, she was just angry, you know, and, and and sometimes we got the brunt of it. Me being the oldest, I was the caretaker, you know. Um, so after she left uh, County General, she went on to work for Lockheed Aircraft. And then she had a, they had a layoff or something. And then she ended up working at MGM Studios. And that's how I ended up the Hollywood kid. Um, she would take us to work with her. We get to walk around the sets. We used to walk around on the, on the, on the site. And, you know, and she was a lab technician and she worked in the dark rooms and she was the only woman and the only black woman working with a gang of men, mostly Caucasian, mostly Jewish. That's a Jewish industry, you know. So she bought a house in 1974, um, and uh, it was it was it's in the Fairfax area. If you know anything about LA, and we were raised very well. I went to Catholic school. I went to all girls school for high school, Notre Dame Academy. Yeah. So 90 percent of the girls in the class were in the school were white. I think my class had maybe. 
12 blacks and the whole thing. So I have this, um, my sponsor used to say, uh, she passed away about three years ago too, but she used to tell me, she, she said, it's not that you're being fake, Leslie. It's just that you're multifaceted. So wherever you are, that's what you're going to be. So if I put all my INGs together and I can talk like this very well, and I know how to communicate well, and I have a large vocabulary, it's expansive. But then I can go hood and be like, what the fuck are you talking? You know, I can go there too. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of the thing that kept me protected to look like a tough chick when I'm really a scary little girl. I was always chased home from school. I didn't have a whole bunch of cousins that would come and roll up, say, we're going to get them, none of that. You know, all I had was my mother, and I did not want to call Yvonne to come up to the school to check some kids because I had to live with these kids after she left. So my insecurities were were twofold. One, I was small. I was this complexion, but I didn't have the hair, the real pretty curly hair. I didn't feel enough. I felt my lips were too big. I felt my eyes were too big. I just, just everything. My legs were too little. My feet were too big. It was just physically I felt not enough and I didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, my mother wasn't a great self-esteem builder. Uh, so, you know, I had to deal with what I had, you know, and we had everything. She'd take us shopping at Saks and, and she'd take us to really nice places and restaurants and we traveled a lot and just a lot of things that we were able to do as kids that a lot of our friends never got to do. My brother and I um, had an extensive background. My brother's a musician. He's a wonderful guy, but he's got that thing. <laughs> He's got that thing. You know that thing. We all sitting in here, we got that thing. I don't know how many of you guys have family members and they're like, they may be able to drink, they may be able to smoke their little pot and do their little thing on the weekends and go back and act normal or do what they're supposed to do. And they're the same, they were raised in the same house by the same parents, had the same background, but here your ass is. That was me. Here I am. Here my brother is. My mother was an alcoholic. She had her little Akadama and her Reuniti and, you know, Manischewitz and stuff on the little bar cart, the rod iron bar, bar cart. You know what I'm saying? That old school Tyrola, Tyrolia, Asti Spumanti, you know. She had all that on the, and we had that thing. I remember when I first got drunk, we were over at a friend of mine's. I was 16, and we were at a friend of mine's house, and she was having a party. And her mother was real laid back and let us have a party. And we had those parties where you, when back that, at that time, we had the afros, lights out, a blue light, or somebody throw a handkerchief over the light. And then they put up some old bloodstone or something, straight through the sky on a natural, and everybody grinding in the corner and all that kind of stuff, right? But I decided I wanted to get drunk. I don't know what had happened, but next thing I knew, everybody else was partying. I was hidden in the laundry room. They had picked me up, I guess I passed out, and put me in the laundry room to hide me from her mother. And her mother had a couple friends over. I don't remember what happened, but that was my first full drunk. Understand? And and, and at that time, so about 16, 17, because I'm kind of a late bloomer. See, I didn't start drinking and all that kind of stuff at 12, 13, 14 like a lot of us do. I started really, really late. So I started out with pot because it was the cool thing to do. You know, the kind with the seeds that pops and burns holes in your clothes. And everybody had polyester, you know, that kind. You know, and I was never the girl that knew how to roll up weed. I didn't do that very well. They'd get mad at me. Papers fall apart. Weed fall out. I was stems. I didn't clean the weed good. So they always give. No, take the, take the. And they had, remember you used to put it in the cigarillo box? 
everybody had a cigar box that was slid under the couch, you know, and I had a stepfather, I loved him dearly, but he had his pot under there, so I'd take a little weed with me to school, and somebody else would, you know, roll it up, this is before I knew about the little pipes and all the little wooden paraphernalia and stuff like that, so weed was cool, you know, I could get with that, I, I, I tried, and just to qualify even more, I tried, um, back in the day, that was in the 70s, they would do an angel dust back then, they call it lovely, they call it, and they would sprinkle a little bit of that, and they'd make these real skinny, skinny, skinny joints, and you take one or two hits. I smoked that, and all of a sudden the room was moving, and everything was just going up and down, up and down. And I don't know about you, but we're chemists too. They say if you get too high or something, what do you do? You drink milk. Well, I'm lactose intolerant, so that didn't go over real well. I'm high and I'm gassy, so that didn't go too good. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't do that no more. And that was back in the days when people would smoke angel dust, take off all their clothes, fight the police, you know, that good stuff, you know, that good drama. You could park down the street, just watch police hats and batons all over the place. And that's that's the kind of era I come from. So I tried that. I didn't like that. Didn't really do any pills or anything like that. Cocaine was not in the in the in the picture yet, but alcohol was always cool. You know what I'm saying? We could always drink somebody. We go over to somebody's parents' house, Jewish family. You know they got some manischewitz. We gonna sip a little bit of this. We gonna get a little buzz. All my girlfriends were white and they were privileged. I had a bunch of Jap girlfriends, Jewish American princess girlfriends, and we'd hang out, and that was the thing that we did. But I bet you I came home straight and upright. Because Yvonne come in the door and even looked like anything was wrong. It was finna be on. And, I, and my mother was one of those beat your ass type women. So fast forward, you know, my disease started progressing. I got to be 17, 18. Now I'm going through all these feelings. I've had a couple failed boyfriends, players, you know. I thought we went together, look up. He's walking through the school with another girl. And that was one of the big things for me. The emotionalism of having a boyfriend as a teenager was horrible. It was horrible because the first thing you're going to do is what is wrong with me that he wants to be? Oh, she's cuter than me. So you're comparing yourself automatically. And I know people who do that today who are grown and damn near ready to get AARP <laughs> or the Social Security. They're still comparing themselves with the ex's new man or what or new woman or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So that's that mental thing. My head telling me that I'm not enough. My head telling me that there's something wrong with me. I need to change something. I need to do something about it. There's something I can do about it. Now let's talk about this God piece. I told you I was a covenant Catholic. I got first Holy Communion. I got confirmation. I have my confirmation middle name, genuflecting every Friday, Stations of the Cross, going to confession, telling him I stole some penny candy, and he admonish me and say, okay, go say 10 Hail Marys, go to the altar, you get on your knees, you say your 10 Hail Marys with the rosary, and then you're supposed to be clear, right? But what I found, the pattern was, I do it, and you go to confession every two weeks so you can take the First Holy Communion, I would keep saying the same thing over and over again. So there was something there, and I didn't know until I got to the root program, but that wasn't fixing my disease, that wasn't fixing my defects of character, definitely wasn't helping me out with the seven deadly sins, jealousy, lust, fear, sloth, you know, anger, and it didn't help, I didn't know anything about that, and my mother wasn't the type of woman to, well, child, you should read Deuteronomy 5 and 17, no, my mother wasn't one of those kinds, she'd be like, go sit your ass down and eat, and don't do it again, 
So in Catholic school, it really didn't do a lot on the spiritual tip. I just knew that there was a God and I would, but, but what was so scary as a kid in Catholic school, like during Lent, they'd cover all the big giant statues. I mean, can you imagine a kid coming in? You smell the incense, you hear the whoa, music, you got all the little candles. It's spooky as hell, you know, to walk into the church, you know. And then we had Irish priests who stayed drunk. <laughs> stay drunk all the altar boys would come back and say well you know Father Rucker you know he had us pouring a little extra wine in the chalice they'd be their faces were flush and this was a majority black Catholic school that I went to so we've got these white Irish guys and got all these old mean nuns with the fat ankles with the cankles just you know that whole uh, bend over swats hit you so God wasn't even in the picture for me I wasn't a bad child but it was not like today where, you know, the kids can go to therapy and all that. In fact, my mother took us to therapy. Let me show you how this worked. My mother took us to therapy as kids for some reason. I don't know why. And we would talk to the therapist. And then the therapist would bring the kids in, my brother and I. we talked to the therapist. And then when we leave, my mother would go in. And the therapist would tell her, well, you need to do this, this, and this. On the way home, we're getting it. Why'd you tell her this? So I come from this, don't be telling our business. That is such a, a key thread for most alcoholics. Don't be telling our business. So you can't tell in a therapist's office. So you're shut down. So you don't have anybody to share with. So what do you do? You get high. You don't have to trip. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to do it. It helped me temporarily with my fears. It helped me temporarily with what I thought of myself. I felt like I was okay if I had a couple drinks. I thought I was okay if I smoked a little weed with you. I got more friends because I always found the good weed as I got older and older. So fast forward. Here comes that other um, alcohol that you smoke. I, uh gotten a great job. I've always had good jobs. I was one of those alcoholics that just, I always got good jobs. I had a high school diploma. I was ready to get out of my mom's house, got my own apartment at 18 and lived by five blocks from her and, you know, had a neighbor. And he's an older dude. And one day he introduced me to it. And I had a girlfriend prior to that. Her man was a big time drug dealer, big time drug dealer. And I was a skater. I used to roller skate in Venice beach. I was that girl that was always out at the beach. When I turned 18, all I had was roller skates, a tube top, and some corduroy jeans. And that's all I did was roller skated and beach bummed and smoked pot and, and took black mollies and did pills and did some microdot, purple microdot. I mean, I, and I know this is an AA meeting, but the alcohol came in all forms because whatever it was, it was something to take me out of my head. I didn't want to live in my head. So it's the best thing to get out of my head is to get something that gets me out of my head. So I'm all on Venice Beach hanging out and doing all of this stuff and doing what I wanted to. And I had that girlfriend and her man, she was about six, seven years. She was in her 20s. She had a kid. And she picked me up in the Rolls Royce or she picked me up in the Clinet. And I didn't, I, I didn't know if he was selling drugs or anything, but I knew they had money. And so she had picked me up one time and she said, Hey, Les, you want to go drop off some money? This is a great story. So it's like something on TV. She said, You, you want to go take a run with me? I'm sure. So we get in the Clinet, the long one, eh, 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 that long, pretty two seater old school. Just look up what a Clinet is. It's phenomenal. And she picked me up and we go all the way to Sunset Boulevard. Right by Chateau Marmont, where everybody dies. I love that hotel. But, you know, where John Belushi was found dead, all that. So we're up there in Hollywood. 
We go for a ride. We go up to this apartment and there's some Italian dudes sitting there. Now, see, that's God doing for me what I can't do for myself because all right, I'm walking into something I have no clue. I'm 18. No clue whatsoever. We get there. She opens up the attache case, pops it open. It's all money. Stacked. It's like in a movie. And so we're sitting there and they're drinking their little whatever they're drinking and they offer me a little drink. I hate Hennessy and dark cognac and all that. I was never one of those girls. Give me a damn uh, brew. You know what I'm saying? Give me a, a Heineken or something. I'm good. But I had a little sip of that. And that's when I first was really, really introduced to that other thing, that party thing. And when they told me how to do it and they told me what to do, I felt absolutely nothing. It's like, what's this? I swallowed. They tell me don't swallow the smoke. I was, you know, I had no clue came out of that no big deal didn't think about it didn't want it anymore fast forward at 21 i'm full blown guy downstairs from me in that apartment i lived in that i was telling you about called me one time said do you get high and i said absolutely didn't know what it was and that started me out so that coupled with alcohol because for me i have to tell the girls that i work with what's amazing as far as alcoholics that get in here and claim we only do one thing one of the things i tell ladies that i work with well did you ever drink alcohol well, yeah. When did you drink alcohol? Uh, when there was no other party favor around. Okay. And you drank it because of what? And the big book talks about men and women drinking sexually for the effects. What effect are you getting when you're drinking it? Were you thirsty? Because if you were thirsty, you wouldn't drink alcohol. You get some water. Now you're not going to drink water alcoholically. Well, you'll be peeing a lot, but it's healthier for you than drinking some other substance. So when you tell me I'm just an addict, I'm not an alcoholic, I look at you kind of askance because you're standing in the room. Well, why don't you go take a drink? And it's always funny working with newcomers who are not quite clear where they are. It's like, well, go take a drink and just don't do none of this. Well, no, no. Well, why can't you? You know what I'm saying? Then they're stumped and they're, you know, they're mortified because they can't figure out an answer that makes any sense. So that's one of the biggest things I have a challenge with, with people who are not clear on what their their, their disease is actually what it is um the way i got introduced uh to alcoholics anonymous is uh, i i gotten tired i was a disability queen i worked at pacific bell i'd been there for eight years um one of the biggest things i used to do is go to work call in sick and back then if you call in sick after seven days you're automatically put on disability so i'm getting half my money from pack bell and the other half from the state of california that's a whole paycheck minus taxes so i'm making more being off and i would always go out on disability and it was like, oh, I'm having, I'm stressing. Because it's always you guys that's stressing me out at work. My mother's still stressing me out, even though I don't live with her. Uh, this boyfriend didn't come home or call me yesterday. It was anything but me. Because I didn't think it was me. I really didn't. So I started doing it and doing it. Then I started doing it at work. Then I started drinking happy hour. It was at noon. Um, we found that one supervisor that was so cool. We go over to the bar, um, you know, because I worked off at sunset again. And we go over to that bar and we get that happy hour going and get back to work at two o'clock. Everybody's buzzed out of their brain, drunk as hell. I'm disconnecting wrong people's phone numbers. I still owe amends probably to somebody because I was one of those girls that typed the stuff in to get your phone turned off. 
So, <laughs> so you know, and, and it just got progressively worse. Then I started calling in sick. Then I started doing, th- then I started meeting people out at clubs and bringing them home with me. Don't know who they are. Then I'm starting to snort heroin. I, mean, I wasn't an addict, but then, and then that would make me break out in a sweat. Then you got to do the other substance. Then you got to drink something because it's got to level you up. So I'm not high enough to not get too high. Then I got to come down, but I'm too low. Now I got to come back. To, I'm trying to find a middle. And it's just amazing how we chase that elusive feeling of that first one. I'm never going to get the feeling of that first one. I'm just going to chase it. There's no perfect high. There is none for me. So I I started, um, you know, I used to see a a commercial on TV and and it was 1-800-COCAINE back in the day. I didn't know about AA really at the time. And I think if you're retarded, you can spell cocaine. Yeah, I knew how to die. I I used to call and talk to him. While I was doing drinking and getting loaded out of my brain and say, hey, so how did you end up doing this? I'm just toasted. I'm calling at three and four in the morning and seeing what they're doing. And they're answering central office now that I know. And I'm talking to them all the time. So one day what led me to getting sober is my heart wouldn't start racing and skipping beats. See, I'm an over-the-counter medication addict as well. See, that was back in the days when you could buy some stuff, take it to come down when I didn't have any alcohol. It was sometimes cheaper than alcohol to get that stuff. So I'm a, I'm a pill head too. So in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about drinking and addiction. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I, I tried all of that. I was a cocktail queen. Whatever you told me it did for me, I tried it. Um, and, 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 and my heart wouldn't stop racing. So I called my mom. I said, mom, I've been, you know, drinking all night. I'm totally out of my mind. I can't sleep. My heart's skipping beats. Would you take me to the hospital? And she came and picked me up and took me to the hospital. So I'm thinking they're going to give me something to bring me down. Cause I'm just, you know, my heart's just racing. I feel like I'm having a heart attack. I can't sleep. I'm tweaked out to the highest level of tweaktivity. I just can't. Nothing. I've drank everything in the house, even got the corners, rinsed out bottles to get see if there was some more. I mean, just insane. NyQuil bottles everywhere, everything. And the man came down with a clipboard. And I remember it was an older white gentleman. He had a clipboard. He had my paperwork. And I thought they were going to give me something to bring me down. All they gave me was some tang and some chicken broth and a few crackers. And I was totally pissed. And they said, uh, we look at your, 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 your blood and we, you know, we, you've been doing stuff all night. Yep. I was so sweetly reasonable. I said, yep. He said, do you want to get sober? I remember him saying, do you want it? Are you tired? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm going to give you this book. And he gave me a directory. He said, when you get out of here, I suggest you go. And my mother took me home and she and I sat and we looked through that directory. We started circling meetings in familiar areas. Oh, we know where this is. Oh, we know where this is. And I started off on that venture. Now, mind you, at the job, by that time, by the time I got about 30 days of going to meetings, I told my job. And the employee assistance program put me into an evening uh, uh, outpatient treatment. I'd go every evening for five days a week. So I'm, I'm an outpatient person, but I came into the rooms at 28 years old with braces on my front teeth, believe it or not. No kids with a job. But done. I was all of 86 pounds dripping and soaking wet. And I was so tired. I was just so tired. I needed to find something. And when on November 2nd, 1988, I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I started going to meetings. And I, I don't know about nobody else, but when I saw those 12 traditions and those 12 steps, the word that stuck out to me 
and out of anything was God. I said, oh, this is cool. I never really had an issue with the God concept when I come in. I may not have had a God of my own understanding, but I was cool with that. Everybody doesn't come in like that. I came to stay to find out I am agnostic and that I do suffer from an agnostic temperament. And what that means for me is I'm good with God when everything's going my way. But when fear kicks in, God's pushed out. When fear and, 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 and pride and ego and my false beliefs and all that come, God's out the picture. When I take over and I'm running and controlling some stuff, God's out the picture. And I did find out when I got here. So when I, after I got here, so I, I started going to meetings and my mom and I were hanging out and she was my trudging buddy. She started going to meetings. She was picking out meetings for me. Let's go to this one. Hey, ooh, there's one at Cedar Sinai. Let's go here. And we started going to meetings together. And the stories is what kept me. Listen to grown men come to this podium and cry and tell the truth on themselves. We were like, wow, this is phenomenal. And then they gave me phone numbers. So I would test them out. You know, when you're a newbie, you up at 3 or 4 o'clock. You still can't sleep. You still detoxing. So I call people, what you doing? We sleep. What the hell you think we're doing? You know what I'm saying? But they were always answering my call. And the meeting after the meetings kept me as well. Because when you go to a 7 o'clock meeting, the meeting's over because in L.A. they're two hours. Sometimes they have a coffee break in the middle. And you go to a meeting at 7 to 9, and it's like, you ain't got to go to work tomorrow. What's everybody going to do? We're going to the bowling alley. We're going to the coffee shop. We're going to go eat at Denny's. We're going to go do that. And I did that. I invited myself. See, I'm gregarious like that. I'm not one of them to sit back and be shy. I love people. So that's one of my character uh, defects. That's really an asset for me because it kept me sober and it kept me coming back. But what happened in the meantime, when I was new, I remember feeling like ain't nobody told my story. I was hearing women talking about leaving their kids in the in the dope house and getting pushed out the, on the Santa Monica freeway out of moving cars and gunshot wounds and bullet holes. And I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, I turned into a little Jewish girl. Oh, my God. What is that? You know? <laughs> I couldn't identify. So one day I saw a girl that I knew from out and she was, she had been around for a while and she had like a year or two. And I said to Gail, I, I was getting ready to leave a meeting. I said, I, I just don't feel this. This is about 90 days. In. I, said, I, I don't hear my story. She said, you keep coming because you're going to hear somebody that has your story. I said, I still got my job. I still got a car. I still got, I thought it was the thing. She said, keep coming. And I stayed to hear my story. The way I get into the steps is like this. I started going to meetings in big book studies. And what we do at big book studies in L.A. is we go line for line, page for page, highlighter and pen. You got that elder states person standing at the podium and their cross references between the doctor's opinion and, and how it works. And they're giving you some. Put this word up. Somebody look up this word and we're doing it like that. That's how I got into this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because they told me, these are the things that they told me. Work the steps or die. That's how cold they were. Work the steps or die. I was so scared of relapsing the steps, and I was a chipmunk. I loved every chip I got. I came in one time, November 2nd, 1988, by the grace of God, November 2nd of 19, this year, whatever this is, I'm getting old. Yeah, 2018, I will be 30 years old. You know what I'm saying? I was 28, and I'm 57 now. So, um, I came into the room and I stayed, but I've relapsed on a whole lot of other behaviors. And what I found out those behaviors were are my seven deadly sins, my defects and my shortcomings. And nothing's more terrifying and hurtful than to hit a bottom in some emotional, financial, sexual, fear, resentment areas, areas, and can't get loaded. 
or won't get loaded, but to feel it with no fix, to feel it with no nothing, to feel it and have to reach out to somebody else and tell them what's going on with you. So now my mother's mythological, don't tell nobody your business, is against the rules of Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell somebody all your business. All your business. They used to say it. They don't say that you're as sick as your secrets. They don't say stuff like that no more. Uh, 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 pray until something happens. Push. I mean, they used to say these things. And I literally sit there like writing down these acronyms and all these. Everything was so profound to me. I'd never heard of these things. And then one day I had a great idea. That I wanted to do a big book study. After going through that book a couple of times, and I went to the guy who introduced me to the book. His name was Frank P. He's, the, he's deceased now. And I said, Frank, do you think you could facilitate a big book study at my house? He said, no, you can do it. He said, you've done the steps, right? I said, yeah. He said, you've been through the book a few times, right? Yeah, you got your book. Yeah, you can do it. I said, by myself? He said, yeah. So I started out with a big book study with about 50 people. All on my floor, against the wall, all over. You had to step over each other. I didn't have much furniture in the house, but you had to step over each other. And that's how I started getting into the book. I don't even remember when I started sponsoring, but whatever it is that people see in me, the women see in me especially, whatever that vibration, whatever that energy, whatever that knowledge, whatever it is, is God-given, and I give it back gratefully. You know what I'm saying? I take you from the front to the back. We talk about, see, for me, this is what happened. Um, when I got into the program, I got married to a guy I met in the program. He had 60 days. I had 30 days. And we were going to charge this road to happy destiny together. Well, that wasn't too good because ain't nobody did no inventory. They told me don't get into a relationship in the first year. I said, that's not in the big book. Because by then now, I'm, 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 you know, even though I had 30 days, I'm like, is that in the book? I asked around enough because, you know, I did my due diligence, find out that ain't in the book. If it is, show me. But I didn't ask them why they say that. And now I can tell you why they say that. Because first of all, when I'm not fully informed with facts about who I am and who I'm not, if I don't know my assets and my liabilities, how can I get into a relationship with someone when I'm not 100%? So I get, I'm about 20% and he about 21%. He coming off a relapse. This is my first time in. We see each other to meet. Hey, hey, let's do this. So after a year, I get pregnant and then we get married. See, I'm that girl. I do it in reverse. I get pregnant first and then I get married. I did that twice. So that's my thing. Uh, <laughs> go figure. Um, and I love alcoholic men. So both of them are in AA. And they're both sober today, by the way. You know, they're both sober today. And they're my best friends. But so he decided he wanted to go into the military at 30 years old. He went to the military, went to the army, and his first duty station was in Mannheim, Germany. So at a year, I, I did my fifth step the night before I was about to fly out. They come and packed all of our stuff away and, and sit, shipped our stuff. And I had this little brand new baby that wasn't even a year old. And I went over to my sponsor, that same lady that told me, stick around to hear your story. And I read my fifth step for eight hours straight. I had 367 resentments. Now, most of them weren't resentments, but I was so scared to miss something, I put everything down. I was, she would just, I'd be reading. She's like, girl, there ain't no resentment. Please keep moving. But I was so terrified because I was, I'm, I'm, I call myself a good student of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a good student of life. I try to follow these things. Not perfect, but I do them better. And I can see my progression. 
I can see how I've gotten better in certain areas. Um, so I read it. We moved to Germany. Everything was fine. My spiritual maintenance was church and going to a couple weird German meetings, really weird on the base. And, um, you know, but it was so funny. I ended up marrying my father because he was abusive. So after I got tired of that last ass whooping, I called his commander, send me, ship me home. And when he came from the field, I think there was a fork and a Cheerio on the floor because I was gone. Deuces, I'm out. So I'm flying back to L.A. Now I'm, I'm home with a, a, a baby, you know, and I'm saying with my mom trying to get together. I had four years sober by that time, so I'm really pissed because, God, I did all this program the way you told me to do it. And this is what I get. I was pissed. I would even pray at the end of the prayer. I would hold hands and just stand there. Yeah, keep coming back. Boom. That, yeah, I'm not even going to do that. I was so angry. And it's so funny when I talk to people about their resentments, they don't want to put God down. I said, why not? Why not? You'll get armed with facts as to why you resent God. Well, you're not supposed to. Who told you that? Okay, so they told me to smash all old ideas. So your old idea is saying that you can't have, you, where do you come, where is that coming from? Are you going through some religious stuff? Or we're talking about being real with who you are and what your feelings are. Feelings are a fact. You'll find that out by the time you get to the fourth column. But let's get this down. You know what I'm saying? I'm a stickler for that. Um, so that was that first marriage. Second marriage, I got married a uh, second time. He was in the program. Yeah, and I'm a, uh, I have a history of uh, being with people who less than a year. And I'm double digits at the time. So I'm, I, I got with him. I'm a new guy. I'm a 13-stepper. Uh, they always talk about the men. Trust me. There's a lot of women who are up here. Uh, cougars. AA cougars. Um, so I get with this guy. And we have a baby and get married. And there was a lot of things that happened um, in the relationships. Having done an inventory. I was one of those things. Those people that thought that if I do all the way four through nine. Then my life would be better. And that won't happen again. That's not the truth. If that person has a defect of character that they have not worked on, even though you've worked on your own, the courage to change the things you can, is they are not one of them. I learned that. I didn't have to go to Al-Anon to find out how controlling I am. If you just did what the big book says, if you just called your sponsor a little more, if you just went to a few more meetings, then everything will be fine. That ain't how it goes. They got to go their path. Can you accept them? This is what my sponsor used to say. Can you accept this person exactly as he or she is, as if she'd never change, or even if they got worse? Dang, what an order. Can you accept them unconditionally? I'm like, I got some conditions. Hell no, I can't put up with this. Well, then you need to know your boundaries. You know what I'm saying? So my sponsor was one of those Betty T. She'd been sober for a long time. How much time I got, baby? Okay. Betty T was one of those phenomenal, graceful Madam Divas. She was an ex-madam, a hooker, a dancer, a showgirl. She was born in 1940. And she was one of those come in and her hair would be traipsing behind her. She'd have every kind of weave on and hi baby. She talked like Betty Boop. How you doing, sweetheart? How you come baby, come sit over here in my lap and all that. But let you be not listening to what she's saying to you. She'd be like, her whole voice would drop about six octaves. She's like, bitch, did you hear what I just said to you? <laughs> <laughs> she done turned into the exorcist. I'm like, whoo. But she was that kind of woman. And she sponsored, I could literally say at least 60 women, 60 to 70 women all over the country. Betty T was magnific not magnificent. And I sat at her foot. I sat at her feet. So much so that they call me Little Betty. I sat at her feet. 
for over 20 years. I had one or two sponsor chains, but I sat at that sat with her and I sat at her feet and listened to her on every area. She took me through that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous when I took her out to the beach to read my fifth step, another 10th step to her. And it got to the point, she said, okay, baby, she, I read the first four columns and, and my resentment. She said, okay, so what defects are, are those? I said, well, the first sponsor I had, she gave me a list. Of, as I was talking, she'd write down my defects, and she gave it to me and told me to pray about it. She said, no, what good am I, check this out, to give you your defects? This is your inventory. This ain't for me to examine you. You need to examine you. Damn. Don't hear that. She said, now go back. You got me all out here by the beach and messing up my hair. Girl, take me home. And, do, and she had me write my whole list of defects and my character assets. Now, everybody does the steps different. They have different little things going on. But basically, she kept to the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. But as I grew up, this is how she got even deeper. This woman taught me how to handle finances. A lot of people say, well, it's the sex inventory, the fear inventory, and the resentment inventory. Yeah. Betty T said, okay, it's time to put on your big girl panties. And we're going to move up to another level. This is my experience. I don't advise this for everybody. And this ain't for everybody. She took me to that 12 and 12, baby. And that fourth step in that 12 and 12 took me to a whole nother level. Did you know that there's an 11 additional questions on the sex inventory in the fourth step in the, in the 12 and 12 that are not in the big book alcoholics anonymous? I didn't know that, but I was having relationship problems. I started reading the 12 and 12 on the fourth step. And I called her one day and said, wait a minute, I'm reading these questions. What? Where did these come from? Am I supposed to do something with you? She said, well, what do you think you do with a question, babe? Answer it? She said, you think? So she had me write. And this was another level. By then, I'm in double digits. I'm about 12 to 15, somewhere real cuckoo crazy. Just old enough to be young and young enough to be old. I ain't an old-timer yet, but I ain't a newcomer yet. And I'm all egos in the way. And I'm all jacked up. And this relationship ain't going right. And he's got women calling the house and pocket dialing. And I'm hearing this whole conversation with a girl trying to get sex and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you know, fetal position. Fetal position queen. When stuff ain't going right, I'm in a fetal position smoking back-to-back Newports. I'm that person that loses weight. A lot of people like to eat and blow up. I just start looking like I'm relapsed. I just start looking really gaunt and looking really sad. And my skin turns green. I just look bad. So I started answering those questions. And did you know that there's another inventory in the fourth step in the 12 and 12? It's called the emotional insecurity Now, I know y'all going to go home and pull out your hooks and look at it. Now you're accountable. I love telling people stuff like this. And now you're like, oh, damn, what is it? And I started doing the emotional insecurity. Did you know there's another inventory in the fourth step in the 12 and 12? Financial insecurity inventory. There's a list of questions. Now, I wouldn't recommend this for a newcomer because I just want to get the newcomer through the first three through the first three sections of the inventory. I ain't trying to take you that deep. I'm going to start you from basics. I've even got some women that's got as much time as me, but they need to go to basics. They've done autobiographies. They've done all this. No, let's go to basics. I just want you to do one column, write the name, and write what, 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 why. Just, just, and then call me back when you get through with those. Get you a big notebook and, and I take them, spoon feed them. Because I know for me, I'm an alcoholic of the variety. If it's too overwhelming, I ain't doing it. I don't feel like it. It's only by God's grace as many times that I should have been writing and I didn't and I didn't get loaded. That's God. 
That has nothing to do with Leslie. Right now we're in the doctor's opinion and we're trying to get, I'm trying to get, and that's key, I'm trying to get people to understand what makes an alcoholic just like me and you go from the day before you got, think of that last run to the first complete day that you stayed sober. What is that connecting thing that kept you, took you from here to here? There's something. So I asked the guy in the room and I said, well, what, what was it you did? He's trying to give us, well, we do this and what we do is you get a psychic change because of the 11th step and you do. No, no, no. What happened on your last run? Well, I was tired. I was mad at myself. Okay, cool. So you, you, you made a decision to stop. Cause the big book talks about you come in on a third step to a certain degree. Made a decision to stop. But the action is staying stopped. But how do I get that allergy that's saying, hey, and that mental, hey, come on, take one, take one. How did that happen? How did that happen? How, what was that? So everybody started to say, well, the day I came in, I sat and I listened to what everybody said. I started doing what everybody said. I said, you're still missing this piece. You're missing that gap. You're missing that puzzle piece right there. What is that? Remember, the doctor's opinion is talking about step one. What is that? That's nothing but divinity. There's nothing but a power greater than me that could stop. Nothing but a power greater than me could stop me from going from the day before November 1st, 1988 to a full November 2nd, 1988. There's God. Period. So I asked myself to go further with that. It's like, okay, well, check this out. So you mean to tell me that the days that I'm totally showing my entire behind, I ain't prayed, I ain't went to a couple meetings in a couple days, I ain't calling my sponsor, I ain't meditating on Jack, I'm in full flight from reality, I am running everything and telling everybody and getting mad at everybody, I'm just off the chain, double digit sponsoring people, written many inventories, know that book, know all the information in that book, know all the things I should be doing, I ain't doing none of it. What is it that day? Now let me make it to the next day. Same thing that got me from November 1st to November 2nd. God, if you don't get that God piece in there, it's grace. It's grace. Yeah, I participated in my prayers, obviously. But I got to be humbled to remember it's grace that keeps me here. I'm not trying to be religious. I'm not trying to preach. It's simple grace. They've been talking about it all the time. I'm sitting in Catholic school, genuflecting and bowing and all that. It's grace. So Betty T took me on a uh, on a on an avenue that got me to the point where I bought my first condo when I was about ten years sober. Because I said this, I have a I have a history of going. They say anybody is they said. Well, this is what they said. My son comes to me with that all the time. Mom, well, what they said was, boo, who's they? Who's they? Well, my God, my friend so and so. Did you check? Did you go find out for yourself? Go do your investigation. Do your due diligence and come back to me and find out. Tell me what you found out. So I would tell her, well, they said I have to have 3% down and I don't have $3,000 or blah, 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 blah. I this little house. I want a little condo co-op that I was trying to buy. She said, if you don't get off my phone and get your credit report and let me know what you qualify for, don't make me get in my car and come over there. False belief system. Still ain't depending on God. Going by what I think I know. Going by what they say. Going by a TV commercial. She said, get on with facts and get off my phone. 
So, six months later, I'm closing. So that one led to one, and then I went to another one, and I went to another house, and I'm good at this now. And it's so amazing when I get these ladies come to me, they want to buy something, I have to say the exact same speech. Find out the facts before you tell me what they say. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm not alcoholic, but I likes to think. Let me go into this thinking thing that affects me today. My thinking is so terrifying. I like analogies. And I like samples. My thinking is like this. If I stay in the present right now, I'm standing here right now at 9.54. We're right here right now. Right here right now. We're in the now. And with me in the now, with us in this room in the now, there exists a power greater than ourselves. It's just there. Can't touch it, can't taste it, can't see it, but we know it's there. It's something. Call it what you want. Now, if I step out of the right now and I go into the next five minutes, tomorrow, next week, next month, I've left the right now with y'all and God. Now I've gone off into this fantasy world that's not me. That's not reality. Check this out. But if I take it and put it in reverse, and I let my thinking take me to who that person was, what they did to me, I'm in the past. So if I'm over here, I'd have left. My head is all over here, because some of y'all's head has drifted during this meeting. So your head been where it's been, what happened earlier today, when you got a call when you leave here, oh shit, I left my wallet at the house, oh damn, okay. When I go too far ahead, and too far behind, and I leave the right now, I'm in a scary place. See, when I get out of the right now, fear hits my ass. I'm totally terrified because I'm thinking and I'm plotting and I'm planning. Now I'm trying to be the director. Okay, but this is what I got to do tomorrow, but I got to call them. And if that, I call them, the if and thens. See, now I'm planning the story of how it's going to be. When I get out from under the umbrella protection of God, I tell myself scary stories and I'm terrified. And if I stay out there too long, I get hit with bricks and shrapnel and shit. If I stay back there too long, I get hit. So I need to rush my thinking. And it's a practice. It's a practice. I've been thinking and practicing on this thinking thing because my brain goes like this. You ever laying in the bed and can't go to sleep because you can't shut this off? How about every time my brain goes there, what I do as a practice, every time my brain goes there, I bring it to it. Right now, you're laying in this bed. Right now is whatever time it is. Right now. Okay. Right now. Think about right now. Because no matter whether it's a good story that I'm telling myself in the past or a good story that I'm telling myself I'm hoping for in the future, I'm still out of God's will. Because that ain't none of my business. I don't know what's going to happen. So to, I don't have the power to control my thinking, but what I do have the power to do is stay in the moment. And I've learned this because of these rooms and this meeting. You just drifted somewhere. Uh-huh. You did. Uh-huh. So come back to right now. I can see. See, what happens, the miracle here is once you get in touch with who you are, when you get in touch with the power, see, the steps are not designed to keep me sober. Did I say that? And the sponsor is not designed to keep me sober. And the meetings aren't designed to keep me sober. And the writing's not designed to keep me sober. 
All of those things combined are designed to introduce me to that right now God. That's all it is. It's designed to keep me in the right now God. To depend on him when I'm totally terrified of what's coming. I have a fear of death that you would not believe. But if I stay and I live in the now, it is what it is. But if I start thinking and predicting, I'm dead already. How amazing. So what I've done, I could go on with story and story to prove that there is God. And in the beginning you started reading, we hope that you say to yourself, I felt like that or I thought like that. And I'm pretty sure most of us have because we have that common thread. But the blessing is we have what those people out in the street don't have. We have each other. We have God. And no matter how big your God is or how little your God is, you can be rescued from your thinking. Because they told me my disease centers in my thinking. I always ask people, where is your disease center? So I'd ask people that. And they'll go, uh, in my mind, that's not what the book said. You can say it in your mind, but it says in my thinking. Tell me exact, girl. It's in my thinking. What I think you think of me, I think I'm going to lose. And it's coupled with fear. Because when I get out of that, I'm, I'm totally terrified. I'm a terrified little girl. I went to Catholic school and started drinking to prove to everybody that I was enough. Um, today, real briefly, I started this big book study with Don. Um, Spirit gave me that. The God of my understanding gave me that. I had too many women that needed to go through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, mind you, people begin sober before they read. People get sober without that book. That book is the roadmap of the treasurer's God. May you find him or her now. So what I said, God, I want to take these people through a big book study, but I, I, you know, they can't come all the way out to Powder Springs. It's not like L.A. where everybody was so closely in proximity to each other. And I went to Don because I'm at a women's group, and uh, I have three home groups. I was at a women's uh, meeting that I'm at every Saturday, and, I, and the heavy hitters come right behind us. I said, Don, what you think about me and you running a big book study co-ed? He said, that's a good idea. You know, he says, that's a cool idea. I was like, yeah, let's find a place. So he decided he went on and found a place. And then we were texting back and forth because I had to speak at Lake Lanier at the, uh, shoot up. Yeah, Woodstock of the South. And I texted him. I said, we need to come up with a name. We were tossing names. He said, clear cut directions. I said, there you go. So every Sunday at 11 o'clock in the morning, I've committed myself. 11 to 1230. We had a group conscious. We have an hour and a half. We have a Google person. We try to keep it like that because I want to transmit what was given to me. I wish I could melt it and pour it on it on people, but that's my God in me. That's me trying to play God. Everybody ain't going to get it like I got it. And I understand that. A day at a time, I'm not as judgmental. Um, why she can't get it like I got it? Then I have to be honest with myself. How long did it take you to get that? You can't get fixed from a man's belt buckle down. That ain't going to fix you. You can't get fixed by going shopping. That ain't going to fix you. You can't get fixed by buying things. Yeah, you can get gifted with things. But what are you going to do with them once you get them? Are you going to do them for your ego, for the crowd, for the pro- you know, for your ego and pride? Or is it for God? That car out there, yeah, I spent a lot of money in that car. But guess what? Let a newcomer need a meeting. Let a newcomer need a ride. Come on, let's go. I'll give you some gas. I don't want to. That's my thank, gratitude to God, gratitude to AA, and my amends for whoever I probably stole the money from at some point. You know, so if you knew in between or whatever, I hope I had said something that may have struck you, um, may have made you feel some kind of way, may made you think. I'm the type of person I like to incite a riot in your soul. 
I want I want you to get happy and angry at the same time. Say, hey, I've got to do something about this. Because everybody can be doing a little bit better than they are right now. There's some things I need to be doing, but God's grace will carry me until I get to those things and discover new things about me. And God is really good. I got two wonderful boys. I got an 18 year old who's graduating in Los Angeles uh, this year. And I got a 28 year old who's a veteran who went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and ended up on the fourth floor at the VA hospital. That terrified me. I've had a lot of terrific things and I've had a lot of tragedies and I had a lot of fear. Um, but in the meantime, I can't say I didn't get loaded. I can say I got scared. I might have fixed, but I knew where to do it. I followed my footsteps. And I leave a footprint around and behind me, and I pray that somebody hears something and follows the same footprints that were laid for me. They don't have to do a new path. Just follow the footprints. Thank you for listening, and I love you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.